Suddenly somebody will say like plate or shrimp or plate of shrimp out of the blue. No explanation, no point. Look at one. It's all part of the cosmic Welcome to the Cult Film Companion Podcast, the home of movies that are off, under, and ahead of the cinematic radar. My name is Chris. I am your host. Joined as ever with my co-host extraordinaire, Andrew. Good evening. Hello. We have, uh, we've got something here. We we have yeah. something that upon first viewing, we didn't realize we had so much to talk about. And I can't recommend more that if you haven't seen Burnt Offerings, watch Burnt Offerings or read Burnt Offerings before continuing further because not only are we going to spoil this, the history behind this movie and the people associated with this movie will kind of blow your mind. It's kind yeah. of... I, I mean, I, we're, we've just discovered this. We've been talking for maybe an hour or, or two already before recording and it just goes on and on and on with all the all the stuff there, behind the scenes. There are many layers to this onion to yeah. a movie that initially flopped upon release. Burnt Offerings comes to us... From director Dan Curtis, best known for his work on the gothic soap opera Dark Shadows. And before we get any further into Burnt Offerings, I just want to remind everyone that we are available on all major podcast platforms. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Cult Film Comp. We are available at the Blind Knowledge Collective at www.blindknowledge.com, which is a great website to check out videocasts and podcasts from around the world. Check out all the fine creators over at blindknowledge.com. We are also available on Newsly. Newsly is an audio app for iOS and Android that captures the latest trending articles based on topics that you choose to follow and then reads them to you in a natural human voice. Stop scrolling, start listening. Download and use Newsly for free today at www.newsly.me. And please use the promo code C-U-L-T-F-1-L-M. That's Cult Film. Drop the I, pop in a one, and get a month free of Newsly's premium service courtesy of us. And with all that out of the way, let's get back into Burnt Offerings. Now, directed by Dan Curtis, written by Dan Curtis and William F. Nolan. Now, this is where it gets... Already this gets interesting because a lot of sources say this is based on Burnt Offerings, which was initially published as a novel. But, according to some of my research, this was actually a screenplay that was on... Uh, the docket, and then became a novel that then became a screenplay again. Although that is somewhat un... I can't cite a, a definite source on that because sometimes novels just sit on a publisher's desk or on a shelf for a while before they get published. So well, I'm not really sure what came first, the chicken or the egg. Was Burnt Offerings initially a screenplay or a novel? I, I can't tell you for sure. From what you've told me, it seems like it was a screenplay first, that it was announced as a screenplay by by the author, 
Correct. Um, yeah, uh, before it was turned into a novel. And we've talked, we did another movie recently where, where the novel came out after the screenplay was written. I can't remember what it is. Uh, but yeah, yeah. yeah it's some, it, Oftentimes it, it, there is a novelization correct. To, to promote the movie, basically. Right. Um, I think even 2001 A Space Odyssey became a novel after the movie came out, something to that effect. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's, it's very easy to decipher, you know, um, what came first. The yeah. novel oh. or the novelization, but um, right. this one, this one's a little up in the air. Was it was it dual? Was it dual that was a screenplay and then a short story and then back into a screenplay? I don't know. It was a I novella. It was, it was a short a story that was published in Playboy. Okay, because I remember that before the, the screenplay was written. Yes. All right. So that's not what I'm thinking of. No. All right. Um, but yes, there's also oftentimes, especially with horror movies, novelizations will be written a little tidbit of trivia for you um this month of october we're doing a lot of horror movies and if you've checked out um one of our uh, reviews uh for texas chainsaw massacre 2 directed by toby hooper uh he did a movie called the fun house and the novelization of the fun house was written while the movie was being filmed yeah and that novelization was written by uh, a, an author who would go on to great fame, Mr. Dean Koontz, under a pseudonym. Oh, wow. So, um, happens. Yeah. So, uh, but, but regardless, the novel Burnt Offerings is out there. The film Burnt Offerings is out there. Um, this I've, movie... read, I've read the book, and I actually like the movie better. Yeah, you are actually not in the minority when it comes to that. I'll, okay, this is, this seems to be one of the the rare instances where people say that the the movie is actually better. So you're not in, in the minority there. Um, okay, actually, the the filmmakers themselves did hated the ending to the novel. Yeah, and we'll get into that. We'll get into it. But um, so this movie stars Karen Black, Oliver Reed, Burgess Meredith. Eileen Heckert, Lee H. Montgomery, Betty Davis, and who am I forgetting? No one. No one. Except that that caretaker who disappears after the beginning of the yeah, movie. Yeah, he's got... He's never around to help this poor family. No, he... <laughs> now, I was thinking about that. I wonder if there were more scenes with him that were filmed and cut out, because I know that there were... Um, just a brief uh, again uh, please familiarize yourself with with the movie or the novel before proceeding further because there's so much to talk about that we can't talk too much about the the plot but it basically we we do spoilers all the time what are you talking about why can't why can't why can't they listen and get all this information and then watch the movie well, yeah, that's fine, too. Um, I'm going to be the contrarian tonight. That's fine. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> there, there's plenty, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, and we'll get into it, there's a lot of he said, she said kind of stuff going on behind the scenes here with yeah. uh, cast and crew. Yeah. Um, th- this seemed to be like just a, a cesspool of drama, this movie. <laughs> Unfortunately. Don't you love it, though, in a way? <laughs> parts I do. There's one, well, well, there's one we'll aspect, that. We'll there's, that. there's an aspect that I find particularly actually very disturbing yeah um it's it actually probably more just dis- the story involved that we will get into is probably more disturbing than the actual film itself in hindsight um so this movie is a, a, a pg horror movie that came out 
um, in the month of October, October 18th, 1976. Now, uh, I wasn't alive in 1976, but from my research, it seems that haunted house movies were kind of a dead genre at the time. They were very popular um, in decades previous with uh, House on Haunted Hill, The Haunting well, of Hill House. I mean, we've, you know, with... Well, another movie that I wanted to do for Halloween that I decided to 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 bring up to offer, <laughs> no pun intended, burnt offerings instead of was, uh, is it the Legend of Hell House? It's the Legend of Hell House, which came out only a few years before, I think. Right. And I think that was a success. I read that book too, actually. Yeah. That, that uh, was Shirley British, Jackson. Uh. Or am I thinking of? You're um, thinking. You're thinking of. You're thinking of the haunting or the haunted house or the, the haunting right. of the... the but haunted legend. houses were kind of a... Uh, for a time... And uh, we were talking about this. I necessarily think that that's the case. Legend of Hell House came out in 1973, so that was only three years before. I don't know. Maybe it, maybe that movie wasn't a success either. Um, uh, but it just seemed... Um, that was written by... Oh, that was Richard Matheson. Didn't he write... Duel. Duel, that's right. We were just talking about that. Okay. Yeah, one of the most um, influential and authors. The, but Yeah, and then Amityville Horror came out a few years later. So, I mean, Right, you know. but I told you my caveat to why I think that was a success and why this one wasn't. Right, because it's based on a true story. Supposedly. I, w- right, right, right. Well, I, from my understanding, it was highly embellished. But um, I know that the Amityville Horror book itself, that novel was a huge seller. A oh, huge, yeah. The yeah, movie was a seller. huge success, too. Right. Well, yeah. but it's... What I'm saying is it's wrote on the coattails of the success of the book. Correct. You know, so Burnt Offerings, the book, I don't think was a huge bestseller. You no, know, because, we, well, we'll get into it, but, uh, well, we might as well get into it now. The only reason that uh, Mr. Dan Curtis, this was his only feature film. He was best known for... Um, Dark Shadows, but also a TV show called Night Stalker about a detective in uh, in the city who... Basically, hunts for vampires at right. night. Right, and he so he was known, and um, he did the trilogy of terror made for so he. Okay, he so he's did, behind that as well. Yes, gotcha. Um, so he's um, he knows um, he knows made for TV movies. And, so and because he did um, Dark Shadows had two spinoff made for TV movies. Okay, but the reason that he got to do Burnt Offerings is because nobody else wanted to do it. Okay, nobody else wanted to do it. Nope. Nobody else wanted to touch the screenplay. And this goes back to 1970. Correct. Even, yes. All the way back there. Um, let, b- before we get, before we backtrack to, to 1970, <laughs> okay. this movie was released in 1976. Let us, let us touch upon what it, its competition was in 1976. We got two all-time... Major. Major. major horror uh, classics. Classics. The, and and bri- brilliantly filmed, cinematically... Uh, groundbreaking. Yes. So go ahead. The two. So, yes. Especially it, burnt it, offerings was going up against the original Omen. Yep. Which was just a yep uh, an just excellent a piece blockbuster of movie. It, it was a huge, huge hit. Yes. And Carrie. And Carrie. Brian which, De Palma's breakout film, which put not only put him on the map, but put Stephen King on the map. Because that's right. So in movies, at least yes. in Hollywood, yeah, yeah, and that's one of the best filmed horror movies ever, in my opinion. Bo- both I've, of I've them, seen bo- Carrie over and over and over again. Carrie, I yeah. can rewatch. The Omen, I is still one of the most. Uh, but it's but gripping. The thing is, 
So, Burnt Offerings... And Burnt Offerings looks like a TV movie. It does. It does. But it's still... I like it. Oh, no, no, no. I I like it, too. But I I think that in, in 1976, horror fans who had gotten a taste for some really over-the-top violence, well, not violence, but some over-the-top storytelling and effects with movies like The Exorcist and um, Rosemary's Baby and Psycho in the 60s were were more looking for interesting kills, which both The Omen and Carrie delivers. Burnt Offerings, it gets savage at the end, but it's a slow burn. It is a slow burn. I liked Burnt Offerings because there's a sophistication to it. And I'm not saying The Omen and Carrie aren't sophisticated in their own ways. They're very sophisticated. But there's something, the slow burn aspect... uh, Plus the attention to the acting, yes, um, you know, that the director has, that Dan Curtis, I guess, had with the actors uh, in Burnt Offerings, and the focus, uh, I mean, on it uh, being a family drama, you know, right. lends itself to a certain sophistication. It's a very different creature, and and it does seem, I will admit, that it does seem primitive compared to its counterparts. Um, in the that year. Well, this- we should also mention that Rocky came out that year too. I mean, these are movies that were like. In their own ways, like really, like kind of like wow. These are people the, were like, I didn't know movies could be like here, this. Here's the thing, people, um, and this is not a, a phrase that's commonly used anymore, but they're um, like the Omen and Carrie were water cooler movies. Like, what did you see over the weekend? Oh, I saw the Omen. The there, there was a decapitation scene that you have to see. <laughs> or the opening of Carrie. You want to see a bunch of naked teenage girls in a in a in a in a, in a locker room, and then see one of them bleed, and and then and, and then see like the worst. Pr- yeah, you want to see the like worst the prom pr- ever, prom massacre ever. Those are the kind of movies. Not to say that burnt people offerings doesn't. About ha- Carrie. I was alive. I was alive okay. when all this happened, and I remember people talking about. I remember the kids at school talking about Carrie. Even if they hadn't seen it, they were talking about it. Right. I remember, here's just an interesting little tidbit. I remember eating a Snickers bar when someone told me about the pig's blood scene, that someone dumped pig's blood on her, and I was so grossed out by that, I was like, what? I couldn't eat a Snickers bar for years after that. It made me think of pig's blood. Right. So those are the kind of things, um, Burnt Offerings doesn't have this kind of, this one like iconic no. scene that cements it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, there's a sensationalism to Carrie. Yes. I would even say so about The Omen. The Omen... The Omen is... All right, I mean, I'm getting really nitpicky here. I'm breaking things down almost too much. But, I mean, in some ways, The Omen is more akin to Burnt Offerings because it deals with actors, it deals with family dynamics, it deals with very straightforward movie making. Yes. You know, yeah, Carrie is very much kind of like a, a hallucination in, uh, in many parts. I, because I, the, the visual style of Brian De Palma, yeah. he was doing the music, things... Yeah. It, he was doing things like the one... the 360 yeah. shot of yeah. Carrie Dan... Well, uh, of Carrie in that... And blonde Afro guy dancing. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Tom Katz, maybe greatest American hero. But I'm just saying, it's the kind of it's so. I, I mean, I, that I, whole I, setup, that whole setup to the pig's blood being dropped is is goes oh, on and on, and it's riveting. And it's shot yeah. so yeah. well. Yeah. So so anyway, so yeah. I'm just gonna say that the Omen kind of has like this prestige factor of like yes. really 
solid actors doing a horror movie. Yes. Carrie kind of had this out of came out of nowhere kind of thing, shock value, I would say. Sure. That people hadn't seen before. Burnt offerings at the time probably seemed tame. Very tame. There's a, and there is a subtleness about burnt offerings. In yes. fact, most of it is subtle. It's very and, subtle. Yeah, and, and you, I've seen it over and over again. It's one of my favorite movies ever. Um, that's why I present, presented it for the podcast yeah. to you. But I've noticed it um, when we watched it again. I hadn't seen it in a long time, but I noticed things that were extremely subtle uh, throughout the whole movie. I, 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 you really have, it's really a movie about, it's, it's, you're dealing much more with people. You're dealing Mm -hmm. with a family. You're dealing with a family dynamic, um, that the other movies aren't dealing with. Like you said, they're very sensationalized over the top. We've got a telekinetic girl and then we've got the, the offspring of Satan. Yeah. Burnt Offerings offers up, um, a house that needs human sacrifices. Right. And underneath that, basically a woman's longing to escape from her modern existence to old, old money, old bloodline uh, life. Right. You know, uh, an existence. It almost brings up um, the question, is she reincarnated from an old bloodline into her, you know, into her life today as a modern... um, wife of a of a, a small family that doesn't have much money that lives in a small squalor so, apartment in right. the city. So you know, she's longing for this other life. And one of the things that one of my cr- critiques of burnt offerings now that I know the be- the backstory about it one of the things is that you you're kind of it it's it's almost miss, missing a first act. You're almost thrown immediately into this family yeah. coming into um this offer that seems too good to be true to live in this huge mansion, um, which we'll get into the setting. Yeah. But um, it's it, it, this huge mansion to stay for only two months. Two months. And it, it, the, the my question to you was, I wasn't, you're not really given a reason to why this is happening. Right. And which was- is apparently fleshed out in scenes that were filmed and were cut. It's too bad. It would be good to see those scenes. I would love to see those scenes. And I know from the book, it's, yes. it's much more apparent, especially with her, that she's she's getting she's getting fried on the city life, especially living in the city and not having much money. And apparently he's an English teacher. He's an English teacher. I don't think he makes that much money. No. Once again, money, money, money. So um, um, I guess for their family vacation, they're like, well, let's go to upstate New York. Mm-hmm. We'll they get... And um, we'll escape the city for a while. But we're not given any of that. If you and, weren't... And especially since it's filmed in California, uh, you don't really get the sense of, like, you know, uh, New York City and then upstate New York, the dichotomy between. Now, apparently there were films seen to the family in New York City that, oh, that wow. were cut. Okay. So, um, I, again, that that's my my critique. You're kind of, th- I I don't mind being thrown into it, but even some casual dialogue mm-hmm. about why they're there would have really kind of helped. I upon repeat viewings, it became obvious, and upon doing research for this this episode, uh, I, I was able to to piece together why they're doing it. 
Um, you have but, the one scene, they go and look at the house and then they drive back. Yes. And then they have the scene in bed, the two of them. Right. With her, you know, saying she really wants it, you know, and he's like, I don't really want to do this. And then I he's like, almost, I'll do it for you. I, I, and then I, they drive back to the house. I, I would have liked to see a scene where she first comes across this offer. Um, because she oh, sure. almost seems to be drawn to this house. From the beginning. Yes. And From he the very beginning. Extremely hesitant. Yeah. He doesn't, he's not. He's, he's one I of mean, those people. He's, he's very practical. But he there's is. something else underneath, too, that he's resisting. It's like he knows that this is this is a bad idea. <laughs> no. <laughs> that there's something really fishy. Now, the thing is, I and I, uh, upon research for this episode, my, my theory was confirmed this is one of Stephen King's favorite horror movies. You, and you mentioned that. You mentioned that while we were watching. You were like, I got, this is like The Shining. I wonder if Stephen King used this as an inspiration. And he did. You he were did. right. And apparently, I'm not the only person. Uh, um, people, I've seen, if you've seen or read Burnt Offerings, and then re- especially if you've read The Shining, the way the Overlook Hotel takes over Jack Torrance is the same way that it takes over Marion... Marion, what's her name in the in Burnt Offerings? Right, Karen Black's character. Yeah. Um, now, although, have you've, read, although you've read The Shining, I have. Okay. Now, the thing is, with The Shining, Marion Rolfe, they're the Rolfs. That's right. Uh, it's a funny name, especially compared a, to the Bloodline name, which is Allardyce. You've got the Rolfs, yes. and then you've got the Allardyces. But there's a <laughs> there's a big distinction that I think that that. That separates The Shining and um, Burnt Offerings is that Marion is complicit in the house taking her over. Because there's a, and there's a one scene, it's only a short dialogue scene, but he says, you're accepting this. Oh, yeah. That's later in the movie. That's later in the movie, but you see her, you see the house. Now, it's, it's 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 interesting to me the parallels with the shining I, I are said, becoming he, more and more apparent to me and, because and the, he says to her he says to her you're accepting this because you're a part of it because you're That's a part right. yes so go ahead sorry um now she's very complicit and 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 basically offering up her family as a sacrifice yeah Jack yeah Torrance, and that's the subtext if you watch it with that. As her subtext, it reads all the way through. Right. Even when, even when the son is about to die from being uh, from the gas from the from the furnace gas being opened in his room, if you just look at her face, her expression, even though she's saying, "Oh, please don't die, please don't die," there's something in her that's kind of like, "Yes, yes, yes." Yeah. Be the sacrifice. Be the sacrifice that I need. Well, I think the it's thing really... with burnt offerings is is operating on these very base and feral feelings and emotions that I think that parents have in and I don't want to say this to all parents but it's at some point in time you probably show I want to ring that little like of course I love my kid but oh my gosh because like there's a scene where he's roughhousing with his son in the pool yes and the the pull it's of the house out of hand yeah and um and she's and he's kind of like facing these emotions of oh my god like i i can't believe i what i did to my son but at the same time he's kind of battling himself of i this like i can't believe i did this but on the other hand like 
part of me kind of liked it. Well, this is, I mean, you're talking about Oliver Reed. You're talking yes. about, and it's Ben, I think his name is. Correct. Yeah. Um, ben Rolf. Ben yeah. Rolf. Uh, he finds he finds a pair of spectacles that are old, that belonged to someone before in the house, at the bottom of the pool. Right. And when he puts it on, that's what starts it. That's what starts yeah. his, his, uh, his aggressive behavior towards his son. And it's, it's important. You know, it's a uh, implistic. Is that a word? It, it there, there's a lot implied here with generational um, sordidness, generational subvertedness, yeah. and generational pervertedness that goes on. Um, that that goes on a lot of the time with um, with. I'm not going to talk too much about it, but elite bloodlines who basically do what they want to do, and they're not concerned with social conventions, and they have ways that they treat each other, and they have ways that they treat their offspring. So you're going to have to bear with us, because we're going to be all over the place yeah. with burnt offerings, yeah. and we haven't even gone back to the 1970 where this started, but let's go all the way back to the original burnt offering, which is... Uh, the original burnt offering. <laughs> the original burnt offering apparently is in the Bible, in the book of Leviticus, which is about... Oh, yeah. um, is uh, Burnt offerings were initially renewal sacrifices, which were yeah. animal sacrifices, which in some pl- cases became human sacrifices. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. I mean, this is nothing new for, for, for horror movies. I mean, one of the things that I was thinking of with the renewal of the house, basically this house looks decrepit as hell, but slowly with, um, it's it's a single, it's not a single drop of blood, but um, blood that starts reviving one flower. The, the sun, before they even decide to accept the house, the sun falls off. Um, like, a, like a little gazebo or something. Yeah. He's climbing off and skins his Skins, skins his, his knee. knee really badly. Skins his yeah. knee, and then blood starts bringing, uh, the, the caretaker's going to throw away this potted plant, and Burgess Meredith stops him and says, no, it's, something's growing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you hadn't seen, and I, I could just see, I think another author that was a big fan of this movie was Clive Barker, because I showed you the original Hellraiser, and it's a single drop of blood that brings back, That's right. that brings, starts bringing to life, That's um, right. uh, I mean, we don't need to get into Hellraiser, but yeah. it's blood—it's blood that starts to bring this this being back to life, and right. it's blood, and um, I and guess a life a force, movie. a life force yeah. that um, this 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 house feeds upon, and yes, um, and, and it, I used to I used to always be so you know I couldn't suspend my disbelief enough you know to, to wrap my head around the idea of a structure. Feeding off people, feeding off their energy, feeding off their souls, and much less feeding off their blood. But uh, in time <laughs> and in, in age, I've learned that this could actually be something that, you know... I would say that some people would believe in. I mean, because... I know that, ma- you know, we won't. I won't get too much into this either, but like with matter... Um, holding energy i have had discussions with people that are just like you know all matter has energy all matter has you know some sort of energy to it right so i mean if you kind of like are able to bend your thinking into that, that right. mode a little bit then and it then starts b- to make so sense. burnt offerings would, would plays into like of, the whole vampire thing too like uh, a house uh, being a vampire basically, basically because yeah. uh, the and bram stoker's novel we're first introduced to 
to Dracula, he's a decrepit old man. Right. And this house is falling apart. It looks, it's a nice house, but it's it, it's in serious need of work. The pool's filthy. And burnt offerings. Yeah, and burnt yeah. offerings. Yeah. yeah, the yeah. pool's filthy. Yeah. The, it needs a new uh, coat of paint. The greenhouse, everything is dead in the greenhouse. Yeah. Um, but with with it it needs it needs fresh blood right just like a vampire right it needs fresh blood and um apparently this so the the abert the allardyces um each each summer they they need to retreat from the house because i i have the feeling that the house is feeding on them to a certain extent for so two months 10 months out of the year is probably feeding on them <laughs> but it needs it needs fresh blood because unless t- it unless it's a ritual like wicker man which you brought up before we started recording right where it's like oh it's summertime let's have our ritual let's have our uh blood sacrifice ritual yeah uh, and, <laughs> yeah. and yeah like the, the and it's it needs it needs fresh blood for the renewal and and it's funny throughout the whole story um, as the house rejuvenates itself through um, feeding on the family, uh, Marion Rolfe is constantly explaining to her husband uh, that you, you know she's done all the renovations herself. Yes, ha, 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 ha. and he doesn't buy it. He's no. like, really? There's the, no the whole way. pool. You you rewound all the clocks. Really? When did you do that? Yeah, you know. And there's also, um, I guess it's fleshed out more in the novel, but um, the oh. Uh, not only is the house rejuvenating, but the the area around it is growing, like obstructing the driveway. Like oh, right. the the plant life is actually growing. Right to to seclude them and isolate them. Right Again, when he tries to escape with his son, the trees basically don't allow it. No, you know it's like they fall in front of the car. And, and if you ever wonder where the sentient trees from Evil Dead came from, yeah, they might have come from burnt offerings because yeah. we get sentient trees that are trying to kill Oliver Reed in the scene. Yes, that's right. And they even it's the the vines wrap around him, and it's reminiscent of the rape scene in in Evil Dead. Yep, it's also like Wizard of Oz. There is, and even. Um, uh, Lord of the Rings, like there is, the, there is in the occult world, like something about trees as well. And they're usually kind of malevolent, actually. It's not they're they're not that protective. No, as they should be. Yeah. You so know, like you think we've of trees got, being protective because I, uh, one of the things about haunted house movies is well, just pack up your shit and leave. Right. So I mean, they kind they've kind of. Now the re- one of the reasons given is uh, again it's more fleshed out in the novel is that the 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 undergrowth is actually blocking like is actually the forest is actually moving in on them it's really? like closing in on so you, did you learn this through a commentary that that's that's much more apparent in the book because yeah. I don't remember that I read it years ago yeah that's wow that's, so like that and, so there's no way out no and so. Again, with the something that Stephen King tweaked with The Shining is that we've got this hotel with one road that's that once a snowstorm hits, there's no way in or out. Right, and so, I know that in the book also, like the shrubs and trees come to life. They're all like, aren't yeah, they like pruned to there's look like a, animals? Yeah, and they turn into real animals. Yeah, there's yeah. A, there's um in the book, not in the movie. No, yeah, yeah in the in, in the book, yeah, the um. There's a there's a maze the, the maze is seen in the film but yeah actually some of the um the 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 uh, bushes are actually shaped 
as animals. They were actually shaped that way. Um, and I think they do that in that terrible TV remake. Yeah. They, they, um, they do a little bit of that. So, I mean, because that's, that's a trick with um, with haunted house movies is why would these people stay? Well, sometimes there's that, that, that force, though, that's keeping you in. Like in Amityville Horror. Right. You know, it's just like you can't they, leave. You know how it is when you're stuck. Well, I think the Amityville <laughs> Horror was like they had no other place to go. They basically had every cent invested in this house. In this. But in, in Burnt Offerings, the house is possessing these people. And especially Marion, yeah. who doesn't want to leave. Now, it, we should also mention that we never see the elderly mother, the 85-year-old woman that's apparently stashed up in the attic. M- M- Mrs. Allardyce? At Mrs. Allardyce, who... Uh, Miss, Mrs. Allardyce, are you in there? Sorry. Is, uh, <laughs> there is... Oh, see, this is another thing that I think, again, the parallels with The Shining... The idea that Jack Torrance was always a part of the Overlook Hotel. Right. Was Marion always Mrs. Allardyce? It seems like she was. I mean, does this happen every summer with random people? Um, or is it a special case with her? Because she they looks... do notice Eileen Heckhart and Burgess Meredith are kind of like, as soon as she comes to visit the house, they're like, yes, she's the one. You like it here, don't yeah. you? You feel something here, don't you? Would you would you be willing to put your you know your heart and soul into this house for as yeah, long as you here? love this house as we love this That's right. house. That's what they say. And it's um Yeah. Yes, they're almost again, I the parallels the the shining, they're hired as caretakers for the Overlook Hotel for the winter. Mm-hmm. They're basically they're paying to stay I mean it's a beautiful all the work state. that they do all summer long, I mentioned while we were watching. But it, how I was much? Like, they're not even. They're not even free labor. They're paying to be, be labor for. But the how house. much labor are they actually doing? We actually see, we see Oliver them doing was, a shit ton of stuff. What are you well, talking we, about? We she's cleaning and cleaning, and he's out there like cutting down vines and. Well, he's cutting shrubbery. down vines that are growing at a rapid rate. Because, I mean, you could look at it that way, but I mean, we for a good little chunk of time like they're doing stuff they're sprucing everything up right but how much of it is the house itself sprucing itself up at times because we actually see the house shedding like old panels of wood at, at right. towards the end no absolutely so, but there is a period of time where they're where i mean they're spending their days cleaning and renovating basically right you know she's cleaning and renovating the house and he's working on the pool, mm-hmm. and then we kind of see the house kind of once 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 it got it like a little kickstart. That's all it kind of needed. It needed its fresh blood, and once it's kind of got its grip on these people, it's starting to it's starting to utilize these people's life force or their souls or whatever to kind of uh, renew and revitalize itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's an interesting story. Um, th- this movie uh, it, it shows up on our show because it did not do well, um, but has a cult following. But most it, it's got a cult following and has undergone critical. It, it, it wasn't well received. Um, now the budget for this movie was two million dollars and it grossed about one point five six million and um, it, it got uh, mixed to negative reviews. Now. This is where we start peeling away some of the layers of the of onion here. So the two million dollars. So 
back in 1970, Robert Morasco had written a a Broadway play called Child's Play, not to be confused with the killer uh, doll movies. Chucky? Of, yeah. Is that the Chucky movies? Yeah. Before before Child's Play was a killer doll movie, it was um, a, a demonic possession movie about... Um, a, a play? Yeah. That demonic became a movie? Y- yeah. Okay. And... Uh, Morass- a lot of Tonys. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, sorry. But, um, yeah, won a lot of Tonys, but Marasco was not, for some reason, um, wasn't nominated for whatever reason. As a playwright? Yeah. Wow. Um, wow. And he developed Burnt Offerings, and initially on board to direct Burnt Offerings was Bob Fosse. Now, this is so weird. The, the listeners should know that um, I I have shown Chris... A couple Bob Fosse movies recently, not knowing that he he was a contender for directing Burnt Offerings. But I showed Chris Cabaret and all that jazz, two very good movies by Bob Fosse. When Bob Fosse was originally attached to this, he had only done Sweet Charity as a film, which was a big, big failure. It was part of the big movie musicals that were over-budgeted, and were huge flops. 1969, I think. So the other ones would have been Goodbye, Mr. Chips, and Hello, Dolly. Just like, that that was the end of the studio system, basically. Everything started to change after that. Sweet Charity was one of those big-budget Hollywood movie musicals that, uh, that bombed, basically, at the box office. And Bob Fosse had done the Broadway show, and so he had been... Uh, you know, he had been offered offered to do the movie and as well. Sweet Charity was his first movie. Was his first movie? Okay. The the show had a, had starred Gwen Verdon, his wife, and then the movie starred uh, Shirley MacLaine. Okay. And who's who? who so it's Shirley seems... MacLaine, who's a very talented musical performer, but hard, hardly ever did musicals. So this was a big chance for her as well, and that was kind of you know a bomb as well for her, her as a as a star. So someone coming from musical theater. To do something like this is very unusual because I'd never I, I I'd never seen a Bob Fosse movie until two weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. And, and when he, I heard that he had, I was like, of all people, it was just a very odd coincidence that his name came up. Yeah. Um, I watched, um, I rewatched Burnt Offerings with a commentary from a, a film historian who mentioned that, um, and then. I confirmed this through further research that Bob Fosse was the first director attached. And after watching Cabaret and all that jazz, I was like, this is really a de- kind of a departure yeah. from me. And, and, and Well, he was actually, just as a, as a footnote, he was actually interested in directing uh, the musical version of Carrie back in the 80s. Oh, was he? He was attached to that originally. Yeah. So he was yeah. g- given Cabaret and uh, or, fled burnt offerings. He, yeah, well, he was waiting for Cabaret to come through. Um, and he was going to do burnt offerings instead. Right. Uh, I mean, who, and can we mention who that commentary, uh, commentator was in the, uh, in the commentary that you watched for burnt Uh, offerings? Richard Harlan Smith. Okay. It's an excellent commentary. I listened to some of it, uh, just now. Very informative. The guy knows his stuff. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he, he brought to light a lot of, uh, what we're going to talk about. Um, so go here. ahead. So so so, Bob, so cabaret happened for Bob Fosse, and he he left burnt offerings. Then what? And so Dan Curtis, who was who, uh, was still working on Dark Shadows at the time, 
owned the rights to a book, which the name escapes me, but he owned the rights to a book that Sergio Leone was interested in adapting for the screen. So, and it's just, it's just, so Sergio Leone paid Dan Curtis $2 million for the rights to this novel. Now, the, the novel, the actual novel escapes me, but the film that Leone would eventually produce would be uh, Once Upon a Time in America. That's starring, based on, on one of his novels, on one of, one of, what's his name, Robert? No, 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 okay. no, 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 no. There's okay. nothing to do with Robert Moresco. Okay. Dan Curtis had just at some point had optioned the rights for this novel. Okay, got you. Sorry. So this novel was transformed into Once Upon a Time in America starring Robert De Niro, uh, one of Leone's, um, now heralded as one of Leone's best movies, which right. is a three-hour epic. It is. It, um, but... So the two million dollars budget came from Sergio Leone. So, so because of Sergio Leone, we have burnt offerings from Dan Curtis. It, it, it's, it's weirder and weirder it's, and weirder. It's very and it's, bizarre, and it's going to get weirder for those of you who are listening. Yeah. Stay tuned. So, um, so Oliver Reed was kind of past his prime at this point. Um, mostly due to um, being one of the most notorious alcoholics in Hollywood. Probably, we were just talking about notorious alcoholics in Hollywood before we started recording. George C. Scott and Richard Burton. I said, get the three of them together yeah. and then leave early. Because <laughs> they'll start drinking and then who knows what's going to happen. So if you were doing like a 1960s, 1970s Mount Lushmore, you'd put up... <laughs> You'd put up Richard Burton, George C. Scott, <laughs> Oliver Reed, and um, I don't know. No, that's maybe. enough. That's enough. Why do you want to? That that's enough. Yeah, the that's three enough. Three of them. Uh, so so wait, real quick. Um, what was I going to say? We were we were doing burnt offerings, by the way, uh, for the listener. Instead of a Ken Russell double feature that we were going to do, we we still might get around to that, but. Um, you, I wanted to mention that Oliver Reed was actually discovered by Ken Russell. That's Ol another little connection. So that Oliver got Reed going on was, here. um, yeah, and he he starred in a lot of Hammer horror films. So he was did he? Yeah. Okay. Um, did and, he? Yep. Okay. And was also, I guess, best probably best well known for being in the Three Musketeer movie. Yeah. Yeah. Those were big, big successes. But he was kind of on his way. Yeah. This was um. This was on his uh. uh he had kind of either peaked or his alcoholism had gotten kind of in the way. Well, that's your because, interpretation. Well, I that's mean, my what, interpretation. Yeah, what I mean, what else did he do after? I'm not sure. I mean, he he did 122 movies, dude. So how how much of a has been is he? You know? Oh, I didn't say he was a has been. Okay, I was just saying that I I, I think that um he was trying to. This was going to be a big comeback movie for him. Apparently, he really. Uh, that that's according to what the 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 commentary said. Well, maybe the commentary is wrong. He had just done Tommy, he had just done Tommy. Okay. So and and Listomania. So I mean, you know, but it doesn't I, look but like he of, did that much after Burnt Offerings, though. Just like no, Black. Just I mean, they worked. Both of them worked, but in terms of high profile movies. So he. Oh my God! Oliver Reeve is in Condor Man. So sorry. Right, um, go ahead. Apparently, all but one of the things that Oliver Reed was apparently a little irked about was that uh, Karen Black receives top bailing for this movie, <laughs> and she was, um, I guess, she was kind of on her way up. 
uh, at the time, I, I uh, she had just done Day of the Locust, among other things. Airport seventy five, right? But she was four months pregnant during the filming of this movie. That's crazy. I had no idea. the The filming was thirty days too. Right. This yeah, was... which was basically like a TV movie. You know, schedule. Yeah, basically. Well, basically, Dan Curtis. I, I guess he almost self. I mean, he's listed as one of the producers, but I mean, uh, the money came from Sergio Leone. But he was basically uh, thirty. It's his had, project. It, it was basically his project. There was very little studio interference until the end, which we will get into okay. the um, the unfortunate. This is in a very unfortunate situation. We might as well address right now. Probably one of the most dubious things that we came across in our research for this movie, and we we had hinted t- about this earlier. Um, the, the a story revolving around the production of this movie. Now, it should be noted that um, before this incident happened, this script was already in place, and for the most part, it's. From um, what I've researched and what I heard in the um, the commentary, it's actually a very faithful adaptation of the novel until the ending. Now, right. The do you what, so the ending. Okay, so let me. So in the book, in the book, so the ending, in the book, the it ends with the pool. It ends with the swimming pool and the sun dying, drowning in the swimming pool. The swimming pool becomes. Uh, it turns into this these rough waters as if you're out at sea in the very middle of a storm. waters yeah and so uh, in the book he he dies there and uh the father Oliver Reed's character is immobilized and can't do anything about it and i guess dies as well and Karen Black's character Mrs. Rolfe she's trying to get out of the house to save to save them and she can't the doors are all locked the windows are all closed and as she's trying to escape the house the house is transforming um, around her and becoming beautiful again. Um, th- this this is something that would have lent lent itself well to CGI if CGI had existed back then. I like the fact that there's no CGI in burnt Me offerings too. and yeah, and that the the special effects are, are minimal and very practical. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's where I'll stop talking and you can start. For the movie, they changed that ending. So the ending to the movie is that. Um, Oliver Reed is shocked in some, some sort of fugue state. Yep. And he's watching his son... Drown. Drown before his eyes. Yeah. But in in the movie, um, Karen Black su- successfully saves the son. Yep. And, and, and he comes back to life. And he's he comes... To... Yeah, he starts talking. He actually crawls out of his... He's stuck in a wheelchair. He crawls out of his wheelchair. And the, the you almost think you're going to get a happy ending here because... Right. The son asks the mom, can we finally leave? Can we just go home? And she goes, yeah. He's, he's like, I hate it here. Yeah. He's, he's a really good actor. He's a really good child actor. Yeah. And he's uh, like, he was oh. in Ben. We should mention that. He was in Ben with the rats. Right. Um, he's He sings. He's We just listened to it. He sings the theme song that was covered by Michael Jackson in Ben. Right. Um, ben he, being the sequel to Willard. Okay. So Ben is a sequel to Willard. Correct. Yes. All right. That I was a little confused about that. Anyway, he's saying, "I hate it here. I want us to leave." And she says, "Yes, we're leaving now. We're leaving today." And in the morning, right before they leave, the well, mother that, says, "I I gotta go tell Mrs. Allardyce that we're leaving." 
I can't just leave. I gotta leave us her, her phone. Uh, I'll gotta. I just gotta leave her the phone number so she can call us. Um, and then the suspenseful buildup happens where Oliver Reed and the son are just waiting in the car for her, and they're waiting and they're waiting. He starts honking the horn. He goes into the house, and he all the way upstairs. He finally the the whole movie. She doesn't allow anyone into Mrs. Allardyce's room. At all, right? She says it's off limits. Only I can, only I can. Um, there's an adjacent parlor that there's that, a sitting room yeah, outside that, that Oliver Reed, that Mister Rolf goes to, that right. Ben goes to, and in in the sitting room, um, we find out there's a, just a shelf of pictures of the former victims of this house. We don't quite know that until the end, and then we yeah. find out that um, this whole time that. Uh, Karen Black has been eating Mrs. Allardyce's food. Um, yeah. I'm not sure who she was putting up this facade for because nobody else really goes into well, the sitting room. I don't know. I mean, you Just could look at Just in case it, somebody could, goes in there, I guess. You could look uh, You could look at it different ways. Like, the food is eaten at some point because at, at first it's not being eaten and then it is being eaten. So there might be... Some entity. That's, That's true. the thing. We don't really know. We There's don't some, really yeah, something it, in it, that room, and it's supposed to be a eighty-five-year-old woman, right? And it turns out that it's it's actually just Karen Black and some some very creepy makeup. Pretty uh, effective. But then, and there's a production still that we should uh, that we should post a, a makeup test of her looking very reptilian. Yeah, it's um, not what she looks like in the movie. No, I wonder. It's it's almost it's it it seems it's almost like an exaggerated look of what she looks like in the actual film. I would say. Yeah, but it, it's more lizard like. Yeah. Um. Which maybe maybe that's why they kind of uh, put the kibosh. Yeah, on it because once it, again going for subtlety. Yeah, because. She slowly, she starts she, morphing. She starts turning into like a, a witch. She starts yeah. look, talking, looking yeah. like a stereotypical witch. Her hair's going white. She yeah. starts dressing in very. She she starts putting these. very weird. She starts putting her hair up in very weird. Well, old, yeah. old like old fashioned. She starts wearing chokers. I, it almost looks like what Gary Oldman looks like in in Dracula at the beginning, with the hair up and like two buns. <laughs> um, but then we get, uh, then we start, then the death count starts. Uh, Oliver Reed is hurled through a window. Yeah. And the top floor. goes right through the windshield. Where the sun is in the car. Where the sun's in the car. He gets out of the car, starts screaming for his mom, and the chimney takes it upon itself to just topple over and kill him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and he so, and he doesn't run from it. He gets toppled. He gets see, buried in the bricks. And then we see that the house has just rebuilt its chimney, <laughs> um, the, and the house looks glorious in the in the ending. Now this is where it gets creepy from the behind the scenes thing. Is that like we just said that the the scripted ending was Oliver Reed being hurled through a, a third story window. Um, to his death. To his death, and um, this is um, I I Just guess spit it out. If, if for people that are dealing with mental health or suicidal issues, you stop listening. Um, Dan Curtis's daughter jumped, committed suicide during the production of this movie, and she did did so by by jumping off a large building. 
In Pasadena. In Pasadena, California. So... And they had to shut down production. They did. Yeah, while Dan, Dan Curtis dealt with this. Would, well, well, he dealt with it. And then it. they came back and filmed that ending. And then they came back and filmed that ending. So that's creepy. Oh, yeah. You would think of... Uh, uh, there's... I, I wonder if they just didn't have time to re-script anything. They they probably already had the... I mean, because they hired or one of the... Or it was mo- a blood sacrifice for the movie. All right. <laughs> well, there's that theory. Uh, they But they had hired one of the most prominent Hollywood stunt stunt workers to, to perform this, this jump. And um, the stunt work is amazing. I mean, he, yeah. he, this guy leapt out a third-story window. Yeah. Uh, and a it, small it, little window too. Yeah, yeah. Um, and apparently, almost missed his mark and almost hurt himself very badly. Uh, unfortunately, oh. this stunt worker would. Um, well, that would have been another it, another blood sacrifice. Well, the stunt this the stunt man. If you want to look him up, uh, did some some uh, one some of the most amazing practical stunts. Um, but died during a, a motorcycle accident gone wrong that was supposed to be a very easy stunt that he had done numerous times. Oh, wow. So Whoa. Um, he didn't even die. Like, he, he did some stunt work that... That was... That, would, you that were, was his would specialty. Say. Yeah. Um, Jeez. So there's some... The, the, yeah. So the it's ending like the of... Twilight Zone movie. It's like, you know, with mm, that with that yeah. death that haunts that movie. Yeah. But so... I mean you, you don't you, you don't hear about this with Bernard Ferencz. No, you don't, which is very curious. Mm-hmm. Because I I it's not even on like the IMDb page or it's... anything. Like this this is wow. all And um... you, did you find that out through that historian on the his commentary? Yeah. About Jeez. Um, I mean, whoa! This like buried information that is extremely pertinent. Yeah. Wow. Because I, pro- I, 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 if I was Dan Curtis, the last thing I would want to talk about is that. Yeah. In relationship to this movie, like my own, like yeah. my daughter. He's got a commentary too, doesn't he? Yeah. Uh, um, you didn't listen to it. I did. I wonder, do you? Okay. I wonder uh, if he mentions it. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I, I mean I, I, that's, that's that's morbid. Horrific. Yeah, that's kind of it like really... if you're really interested in the morbid curiosities, um, they say certain movies are cursed. Burnt offerings, that could be one. It it doesn't get brought up because when I think of the cursed movies, I think of Poltergeist. Well, Exorcist too. I mean, I don't know if anyone died, but that house burned down twice, didn't it? At well, least once. There were there was all sorts of stuff with The Exorcist as well. Well, one of the most... I think one of the things that doesn't get brought up the most is that um, there's a real-life serial killer on screen in The Exorcist. What? In the scene where uh, Reagan gets the spinal tap, they used an actual surgeon and one of the assistants to the surgeon. The assistant to the surgeon on The Exorcist was the serial killer that became the basis for William Friedkin's movie Cruising. He was ah! he was hacking up this this surgical assistant on his off hours was hacking up uh, uh, gay men in leather bars and tossing them into the East River like a Dahmer type of serial killer. Yeah. Ah! yeah, I'll just scream again. I mean, that's not even a real scream. Do you want me to scream now? No, that's please. That's crazy. Don't. Yeah, there's so. I mean, if you want to get into some sort that, if you want to look into some of the sordid histories behind movies, I'm surprised that this doesn't get brought up. I'm surprised too. 
Um, because this reminds me of, um, this doesn't remind me of, unfortunately, it's just a similarity, is what happened with, um, what's his name? Mm, anyway, the, uh, the Justice League movie that oh, the director know. had to leave because his, his daughter committed suicide. Oh, and another dear. daughter, another, another director took over for him. Anyway. Wow. Uh, wow. So, Whoa. poor Dan Curtis. And yeah. uh, he's passed away, so we'll never really know. But, um, okay. yeah, so there's some... The, 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 the background here with Burnt Offerings is... is um, it's its own movie. Yeah. It really is. And maybe um, not one that you want to watch. No. <laughs> I was going to say, like, that story that I just told is probably more traumatizing and disturbing than the basis for this movie. Yeah. Uh, so there's anyway. also, um, also apparently, um, most of this cast did not get along with each other. They hated each other, didn't they? They did. Karen Black hated Betty Davis. Betty Davis hated Oliver Reed. Oliver Reed hated Karen Black. It was like a hate triangle. Yeah. Uh, uh Oliver Reed, uh, was probably too sauced. <laughs> well, so he, was, he apparently he was showed... wild. I mean, the antics that he did um, during the shooting, during so, production of this, a couple was story, out of control. A couple of the stories about Oliver Reed's drinking behind the scenes were once Betty Davis's um, f- uh, room service cart in the hotel that they were staying at. He commandeered it and would like ride it like a surfboard down the hallway and smash into the wall and smash into the wall and loved it. <laughs> There's another. There was another story about him finding a set of bagpipes, and apparently doesn't know how to play the bagpipes, but was so sauced that he insisted on walking around this estate, fell down a hill <laughs> while still playing the bagpipes. <laughs> um, well, and he got Lee Montgomery drunk. His mother finally like intervened. He said, give me back my son. Well, actually, well, the way that he said it was actually Reed's Wranglers. Yeah. So Oliver like, Reed he had, had like, like a posse. He had like two people that were just kind of like keep him like probably kept the drinks coming, but also tried to keep him out of trouble as much as possible. And he convinced, yeah, he convinced Lee Montgomery, who was what twelve at the time, I guess so. Yeah, convinces, conv- let said, well, just a little bit of wine, well, just a little bit of wine. But uh, apparently, Lee Montgomery, be, you know, being twelve, of one full glass of wine got him sauced. Yeah, which, yeah, what's what happens happen? if you're twelve? Yeah. Um, but yeah, Betty Davis didn't like Oliver Reed. She didn't like Karen Black. Karen Black didn't like her. No. Yeah. Um. And but you don't you don't it doesn't it doesn't, it doesn't detract I was gonna from say, the movie. Sometimes like the acting is so good, and the relationships between these characters is gonna, so well played out and portrayed. So kudos to them for putting whatever kind of um, beef beef yeah. When the cameras they might they might have been talking shit about each other, yeah. but the moment the camera started rolling, they're professionals. Th- they're there because they're sometimes it. you hear stories about. Actors and actresses not getting along, and it shows on screen. You're like, yeah. you don't buy this. If you, if I didn't know that there was any tension, I never would have guessed it for a second. Yeah, you think I, they would all have ultimate respect for each other the the way that they perform. In the the way that they perform, ba- Davis is the is the the uh, Oliver Reed's aunt who he dearly loves, probably like a mother. Yeah, and, and you probably- buy. 
and it's you, probably his late mother's sister, actually. Right, and you buy that the, the relationship is that he loves his aunt dearly, yes. and you buy the fact that uh, at some point in time, Karen Black and Oliver Reed were madly in love, and they seemed like the fires kind of it's a little it's it's going out. That's right. In their relationship, but you buy them as a as you buy them as a couple that has been together. That have for a, a history. Long time. Yeah. And especially, I mean, Lee Montgomery, as far as child actors go, he is phenomenal in this He's movie. He's terrific. You really, he, especially the scenes, because he has more scenes with Oliver Reed than he does with Karen Black. You buy the father-son dynamic yes. there. Yes. Um, you, Very much so. There's so much. And there's a lot of, there's, it's when, after, after he, after he basically, after Oliver Reed basically abuses him in the pool, um, then there's this tension between them and this longing between them. That, and like it, this, this a, horrible be, thing has come between them and right. in the relationship. And Oliver, it, he it buys, I buy it as a father that is so regretful of what just happened. He puts out his hand and just goes, friends. And Lee, Lee Montgomery just like like his eyes well up and he just goes dead and runs and up and him. hungs. Yeah, it's just like, like I said, well, there was apparently no tension with the two Lee Montgomery and I, anybody. I yeah, right. He's he was as far as he has um, good memories of filming it. He has nothing but good memories from the filmmaking in, yeah. uh, industry. He's got his burnt offerings uh, script all signed by the cast and That's crew. Right. Um, just That's a great, great fortune. Um, I, I, I wondered that if <laughs> I don't want to bring up George C. Scott again, but I wonder if he was more traumatized by that. We watched a, a trailer for a yeah. George C. Scott movie about uh that George C. Scott directed as well as starred in about yeah. a family. The that, savages loose. Yeah, about a family that gets Shh. stranded on a desert, a deserted island, and Lee Montgomery grows up and yeah. starts having. Basically, sexual relationships with his mother. Well, I don't and know. It's a different actor. Yeah, it's like the Swiss Family point. Robinson with incest. Yeah. <laughs> so if you want, if you want another dubious Hollywood thing, yeah, Google the Savages Loose and Google George C. Scott's ridiculous um, proposal about um, offering people money, basically money to see this rated R film. And he would give you money if you agreed that it should be rated R. He's almost bribing you. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, what the hell? Now enough now, about George C. Scott. Now Lee Montgomery. He, I showed you a couple clips from a dance movie he did, a teen dance movie that he did in the eighties with Sarah Jessica Parker, uh, Helen Hunt, and Jonathan Silverman. Yes. <laughs> so that was kind of a hoot. To see him do it in that context as yeah, well. Yeah, because he goes from a, a, a tortured 12-year-old either stuck in a haunted house with Oliver Reed and Karen Black or abandoned on an island with George C. Scott to having feathered hair and dancing with Sarah <laughs> Jessica Parker. <laughs> and being all buffed out. It's called Girls Just Want to Have Fun. It must have been right after the Cindy Lauper single came R- out. Yeah, I would imagine. Um, he also ended up... Uh, having musical interests and did score a movie what's the movie that we should just mention what he scored well he, he did score one movie so he did apparently he is singing ben he in, sings ben yeah he sings ben in the movie ben and another song as well i think and then the well what's the hold on what's the 
Oh, composer. There we go. Hold on, hold on, hold All on. All right. Cause it... uh, it's called The Legend of Phantom Rider, 2002. And then I guess, uh, yeah, and then another short in 2005. Oh. So just, yeah, just for the sake of mentioning. But he is, um, uh, again, apparently someone um, who actually came out of the, the Hollywood system relatively unscathed as a child actor. Seems like it. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say... I mean, we watched he, an interview with him he pretty seems, recent. He doesn't seem to have any... He seems to be very candid, very mm-hmm. open. Doesn't look like he pursued much in the industry after a while, so... Yeah. He just kind of saw it as work. Uh, yeah. I mean, so there are some there are some success stories when it comes to child actors. I was going to... He kind of reminds me of... um. Being well adjusted, kind of similar to a a, a, a Jodie Foster who started um, in some very questionable roles, but has you know is for all intents and purposes seems to be a, a, a well adjusted individual. So uh, good for these two. Um, and he's not someone that I was familiar with until because I I think I've seen the original Willard. I don't think I ever saw Ben. Um, and I certainly never saw girls just want to have fun. Um, and I probably never will. It, w- it looks dumb as shit. I probably <laughs> never will. Um, and I really have no interest in seeing the savages loose. But uh, he's great in burnt offerings. Now, um, just uh, so burnt offerings was the first film ever First movie to be filmed at the Dunsmoyer House in Oakland, California. Now, this house itself has a very dubious history. Oh, do tell. It was built in 1899 by the son of, uh, by Alexander Dunsmoyer, son of Robert Dunsmoyer, a wealthy coal magnate from Victoria, British Columbia. Uh, he built this house as an intended wedding gift for his new bride, but she fell ill and died before before it could even be what? completed. Really? Yeah, so this house might just be cursed. This wow. house must, might just be... Uh, it's appara- an estate now. You can go visit it. It's, it's open to the public. It's um, It was used in Phantasm. I'm trying to think what else. Um, off the I top married of my... an axe murder. Honey, I married an axe yeah, murder. Yeah, um... So, no, it's so I married. So, so, so I married. So I married. You're right. But um, so the, 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 so uh, uh, it might be it's a fun in, place to visit, but it probably is not a, an ideal place to live, given um. I, yeah, what's gone on? It's also yeah. in a view to a kill. I didn't know that. Okay. So um, it's a very famous place, and um, now uh, but this was the first film, but it's the movie is set in um movie set in Long Island. Um, oh, is it? It's yeah. supposed to be long, not upstate New York, but Long Island, mm-hmm. huh? Like the Great Gatsby. Ooh, wow. Yeah, yeah so, mansions, which are, well, you know, in the original Great Gatsby, they actually used Newport Mansion for that. Yeah, right. So, so people don't go to Long Island, uh, Long Island to film rich people anymore, I guess, or no. <laughs> that live in Long Island. They didn't even go there in 1976 to film it. Right. <laughs> but... Uh, there, there's a lot to like about this movie, and I can see, uh, although I can see why at the time, it was, um, it just wasn't, it, it wasn't 
what the the movie going public, especially what um, horror fans were really kind of a were fans of. You know, The Omen and Carrie both came out in '76. Amityville Horror was '79. So, so we're, yeah, we're retreading what we already talked about. Let's talk about that chauffeur. Right. Yeah. So one of the most notable changes, I guess, noticeable as far as um, one of the reasons why the movie is so well remembered is the sinister smile that this chauffeur has. Now, there is a chauffeur in in the book when it deals with some of the memories that are going on, but... Uh, the actual look of the chauffeur and the sinister aspect of the chauffeur actually comes from Dan Curtis's own memories of his mother's funeral and not actually from the novel itself. And that's this that's that's actually the storyline in the movie is that Ben's mother died and he keeps getting flashbacks and nightmares about attending the funeral and that chauffeur um, was there at the funeral as well, driving driving the car. This really old car. It seems it seems too old to be used at a funeral. From let's see, what what that if if it will if it was if it was Ben as a child, and it, we're talking nineteen seventy six. What do we do? We like take away a few decades, so we're going probably back to the thirties. Okay, so maybe for the thirties. Yeah. All right. Now he's. But it's, got, I mean, it looks like a car. Is it a car or a hearse? It's actually. It's it, a car. It's, it's a, not a hearse. No, because he's a chauffeur for the for the family for, for the family. Okay. Still, that car looks like it's from like 1903 or something. But it's, yeah, it's. Yeah. But and you hear that's a that's a very effective part of the movies that you hear that motor that primitive motor coming, and that's when he starts getting his. Basically PTSD. Yeah, because he's got nightmares of this funeral, but then he also hallucinates. Yeah, yeah. It starts out as a nightmare, but then he starts seeing it in the daytime. In the daytime. While he's out cutting shrubbery. And then when... Drinking his cores. When poor Betty Thomas dies. Betty Davis. Betty Davis. (laughs) Uh, Before when Betty Davis dies. Betty Roberts. (laughs) So Betty Davis dies, and then the, the chauffeur kind of... It's almost a, a it's it's a bizarre scene where he shoves a, a coffin right into the room. Yeah, um, but one of the that's most a horrific. I, that's a really scary fucking scene. Well, the whole any scene with the chauffeur is creepy. Yeah, but I now, mean, she, with her like so she's a, in bed and she's like ah. Well, she's not. Like, yeah, she. We see her rapidly deteriorate deteriorate before our eyes, mm-hmm. and then but the chauffeur is one of the most memorable parts of the movie as far as yeah. uh, scenes that will stick with you yeah. because mm-hmm. he's got this smile that reminds me of wearing sunglasses too uh, yeah um, he's got this smile that reminds me of this old silent black and white movie called The Man Who Laughs which mm. is, which was the is the basis for the character, the Joker. Really? For Batman, yeah. Really? It's an old black and white film. It's about a guy who's got a permanent smile on his face. Oh, that's creepy. That's freaky. Yeah, and that was the basis for the Joker. And I had uh, no idea. Yep. Yeah. It's called The Man Who Laughs. 
And um, and why does he have a permanent smile? Is it because it's been... It's a birth mouth... defect. <laughs> he was born that way. <laughs> He's can always you, laughing. Can you imagine? Can you imagine having that birth defect? Yo. Oh, man. I would... I mean, I'd wear a, a he does. veil or he something. He does. And Yo. it's like a, you, it's, you only see his eyes and then like it's finally revealed what he looks like. Oh, because he's been covering yeah, it up? Yeah, he covers up his, yeah, wow. he's, yeah, he's self-conscious about the fact that he can't yeah. control his mouth. Yeah. But anyway, so that's the basis for the Joker. So, that's um, what it, th- this guy yeah. would, this guy would be perfect to cast as the Joker. <laughs> he's got this smile, this really toothy smile. Mm-hmm. You can see every row of teeth this guy's got. Mm-hmm. It's played, and just I should mention, it's he's played by Anthony James, who did a lot of a lot of other stuff as well. Right, but he's best known for playing villainous roles. Is he? And, okay. Um, <laughs> so one of the stories that was shared by the the uh, the, the film historian when talking about this movie is that um, Anthony James, there was a an Abraham Lincoln project in the works. And okay. one of the the agents representing Anthony James was talking to the producer, and he said, "Well, I think this is the perfect role for Anthony James." And the producer says, "No, no, 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 not at all." And he goes, "Why not?" He goes, "He's you know he's got he's got he's got the height, he's got the build of of Lincoln. You're like he'd be he'd be perfect for this." And he goes, "The producer just looked at the agent and goes." Abraham Lincoln wasn't psychotic. <laughs> That's that sums up the look. Like if you could just picture this look, because he's got the black sunglasses on. He's smi- He's giving you a smile, like he knows something that you don't know. Mm-hmm. And at a funeral, that's it's the most off-putting kind of look to have. Completely inappropriate. Yeah. Yeah. So he's he, smiling at you like that at a funeral. And what was I had at your to, mom's funeral? And I just want to mention before mm. we stop talking about Anthony James, mm. the name of his autobiography is called "Acting My Face." Well, there you have it. So um, there, there it is. Which came out in 2014. Previous to this, in 1994, he published a book of art and poetry titled "Language of the Heart." Okay, all right. Um, but this book is, is only from 2014. Wow. Yeah. Okay, be, well, it's not long ago. No, but he has since, unfortunately, like most of the people involved in this movie, has passed away. Okay. Oliver Reeve is passed. He Karen passed Black shortly is... after Gladiator. He was in Gladiator. He, I think he died, he may have died before Gladiator came out, actually. And Babe... Betty Davis died relatively soon after Burnt no, Offering. No? No, I mean, 80, 86, Karen, so like 10 years later. And I later. think Karen Black died in 2012? Yeah, she d- yeah, she died not too long ago, and she, she had uh, health problems, and she had no money. She had no money. There's actually, um, there's actually video on YouTube of someone visiting her, uh, this indivi- this man who became friends with her and visited with her in the hospital and interviewed her about her career and her present state. So, and I was Facebook friends with her before she passed away. I, I I still am. Someone runs her page, but she was very active. She was doing plays. And I just you know? want to give a shout out to um, completely off subject, but just speaking about um, actresses um, who are who are dealing with. 
personal issues and financial troubles. Uh, Valerie Perrine, which I, I covered the documentary on. Right. Uh, I'm friends with her on Twitter. Awesome. So uh, it, she has a GoFundMe to help with medical bills. She's currently suffering from... Um, is it is it Parkinson's? Yes, yes, thank you. That's right. Very severe Parkinson's. That's disease. right. That's awful. So, um, uh, hit her. Uh, if you, God, if you're in a position anything. to help her out, um, please check out the documentary and please um, help out Valley Prine. Unfortunately, some of these actors and actresses um, that we uh, they don't have either the best managers of their money or don't get the money that they they kind of deserve for their for their work. Valerie Prime did a lot of work. Karen Black did a lot of yep. work. You'd think that Hollywood had would you know have some sort of uh, program or you know organization to help their their former stars. Yeah. Anyway, uh, but I mean that's the whole. We can get into the whole discussion of yeah. Hollywood chew. Yes. I mean, actually, if you want to get, I, I guess you, you've seen Nope. Yeah. But apparently the whole basis of Nope on Jordan Peele is that uh, Hollywood will chew you up and spit you out. Yeah. And it's actually, it becomes very literal in its imagery in Nope. So, you see it. You see it. There's actually, you know, tons and tons of blood raining down. Yeah. I mean, how, yeah, that's the metaphor right so, there. So, um, yeah, if you're in a position to help out, um, please do so. Um, and... Right. What else about burnt offerings? I mean, we've covered I think, so much. Yeah, I think that's enough. There, it's it's not a heavy film, but it's talking about it is heavier than the film itself. Yeah. Um, just because of some, uh, just because of the background of what happened, um, one can almost argue. <laughs> that the background of the movie is is worth a, a movie of its own. Um, in the right hands. Yeah, it would have to be done in a very tasteful manner. Um, but the acting... Uh, and another another cr- a common critique of the movie is that it does look like a made-for-TV movie, which doesn't surprise me, given the fact that um, not only was Dan Curtis... More from his background was strongly in TV. He brought out a, a lot of a lot of the crew that he brought on was was more familiar with television work. The cinematographer, the production designer, these were all people that he had worked with before, um, and primarily in with Dark Shadows. But what it's, was interesting about the camera work in Burnt Offerings is that oftentimes the camera is below the actors, looking up. I, I it's, noticed it's it's at a very odd angle. Uh-huh. It's almost as if a vertically challenged cinematographer was. <laughs> <laughs> it's effective though. It is. It it, it, it works for the movie. I think this. I think there's some there's some excellent scenes. There's one scene in particular that I had to I rewound to show you. There's um, there's a scene where Oliver Reed is finally looking at the shelf of all these these pictures and. Earlier in the movie, we see Karen Black and we get to see all the pictures. That turns out these are all victims of the house. Um, and at the end of the movie, we see the reveal of three new pictures on the shelf. And it's of, them. It's the Aunt Betty, Aunt Betty Davis, and, and Oliver Reed, and, and the son. And the son, yeah. Um, but um, when Oliver Reed is confronting Karen Black about her um, 
unusual behavior. Um, instead of showing the camera, instead of um, going and showing the pictures again, it actually goes behind the shelf. And we see the backs of these picture frames and Oliver Reed's reaction to it. There's some very subtle, um, strong filmmaking going on here that that takes it a, a huge step up from a made-for-TV movie. You could definitely see that this, this, that there's cinematic value here. There is. And um, I, I'm and glad that Dan... Beautifully, it is beautifully filmed, especially the outside sequences. Um, it's almost like there's a a soft tint or something in the lens um, to kind of make it look dream-like. Yeah. Yeah. It's... I, I Well, and I think that just goes to the... The aesthetic of this movie, it's very much like a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. You kind of one. get like a Hansel and Gretel kind of feel to it. The yeah. witch that needs um, fresh blood yeah. to, to keep going. Like a grim fairy tale. Yeah. Well, yeah. The, the original, if you've ever, I, I took a class studying the original grim fairy tale. They, The Brothers Grimm just, uh, I think there's a reason that we use the word grim from their last name. Mm-hmm. There's some dark, dark stuff going on in mm-hmm. those those original stories. Mm-hmm. You see it in Into the Woods a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, burnt offerings. This is um, th- this is, this is kind of I I could see where Stephen King and Clive Barker. I, I know for a fact Stephen King loves this movie. Um. And I'm I'm thinking that Clive Barker does too. I just I get the they their their style of writing kind of lends itself to this sort of a gothic kind of um, storytelling. Yeah. So I this movie uh, I could see why it's so influential and why it's it's undergone uh, reappraisal and is now. W- much more well regarded than it was in 1976. I I think that um, it was a victim of circumstance, like like we 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 already talked about the movies that it was going up against. I mean, even if you're a Burgess Meredith fan, he, you know he he put out Rocky the same year, so this guy <laughs> did Rocky and did this, and he played he played Karen Black's uh, father in Day of the Locust. He's very good in that. In fact, I think he was. Nominated for an Oscar for that. Really? Yeah. Okay. Uh oh, that might disqualify Day of the Locust for our podcast. We'll see. Well, anyway, uh, we will wrap this up with some um, some positives because we already talked about the grim background surrounding this movie. Uh, the Saturn Awards, best known for sci-fi, fantasy, and horror movies, this won for best horror film, best director, best supporting actress, and. Um, the Sitges Film Festival, which I believe is in Spain, yes, Sitges, Spain, I'm probably butchering that, it won for uh, Best Director, Best Supporting Actress, Best Actress, and then this is bizarre. I'm not sure. if th- This is from Wikipedia, so this might not be accurate. I find this very hard to believe that Burgess Meredith, who is fine in this movie, is in it for all of, what, five minutes? Basically. One best actor? Yeah. Well, I don't know over, if that's... Over Oliver Reed. Well, I don't... Oliver Reed's performance is so withheld. He, You get the sense that he is someone who suffers from PTSD. 
um, there's almost a pause w- before every line that he gives. I, and you would think you would think that 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 would deaden the the pace of the film, and in a way it kind of does, but it works in favor of his character. Right. Yeah. It's um, and he's he's such a you know especially given his antics as as a person, um, you buy that his character can't really step up and be the man that he needs to be uh, for his family. You do feel that with him. Yeah. You know? you, and he's, I, I think he's very tormented by that. Yeah, I mean, you could see that it's kind of a deconstruction of the of the nuclear family. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, mother, father, son, aunt, they all... Um, what happens when they're put in this 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 circumstance? How they all they all deal with it in, in in different ways. The son doesn't know what's going on because he's he's kind of the young innocent. Yep. The father knows something's wrong, but not exactly sure what's going on. And it's and it's confused with his own uh, with his own inner struggle. Right. Yeah. Because he, he it seems that he never quite got over the death of his mother. And then you know he, the, the aunt passes away in this movie, yep. and his yep. wife is becoming more and more distant, and just becoming someone completely different. Obsessed with the house, yeah, yeah. So I mean, you could see it as a. She doesn't even attend the funeral. She doesn't even attend the no. aunt's funeral. Well, someone's got to tend to Mrs. Allardyce. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I I I I like the fact. You know, I I'm kind of curious. Like, if I don't even read the full book, I just kind of want to read the end of Burnt Offerings because I I I like an ambiguous ending. Yeah, she. I in the book I didn't mention this when she's trapped in the house and it's transforming, and her husband and son are now dead. Um, she has a a mental breakdown, and the only thing she can think of is to go up into Mrs. Allardyce's room, and she does sit in Mrs. Allardyce's chair. And the way it's described in the book, there's a burning, burning white light that just basically burns away all of her pain. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I uh, think that's a good place to leave. Yeah. I, I'm just thinking that I I wonder if the ending was written in such a way that they knew How would they have filmed that? Well exactly. Not yeah. only what how would you film that if you're thinking of we've got to compete with something like the omen with these 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 death scenes that are so Highly constructed and so. I mean, him go, him being thrown out of that window is very much the same as Lee Remick being thrown out of the hospital window in The Omen. Well, not only that, in the, the nanny who jumps, who commits suicide during the off the rooftop. Yeah. Uh huh. Um, it's also been criticized that the ending of this movie is very similar to the ending of one of the Dark Shadows Oh, really? Movies. Uh, I forget which one, uh, but if you're familiar with the Dark Shadows made-for-TV movies, apparently, um, because 
one of the comments that I found kind of telling is that Dan Curtis boasted that he rewrote the ending for this in 15 minutes. Right. So I wonder if he was just kind of capitalizing on... That type of, you know, that type of sensationalistic... Sensationalistic, and now in, in, in hindsight, the reveal of Karen Black as Allardyce the Witch at the end is very similar to the reveal that Norman Bates's mother is dead the whole time in Psycho. Okay. The re- and like that the, is him. Yeah, well... That, no, be, that he's adopted her... But there's... Persona. But we see in the silhouette of Psycho, you see a silhouette of a woman sitting in a rocking chair. And it's her corpse. Oh, it, right. Oh, yeah. Eesh. So... The, the turnaround of the reveal of turning around the rocking chair is yeah. very similar to the ending of the burnt offerings now that I'm thinking of it sure um sure or Psycho. Just, uh, and who it's right it's right right yeah um it is very very similar now. yeah but again like you were saying how do you film just this ever burning light mm-hmm. it's one of those things that it's um it's reminding me of some of the scenes in altered states is like how do I how do I f- Film right. what is written. Right. I mean, it's one thing that you can express. Ken Russell with Patty Chayefsky. It's you're, It's the theater of the mind that you create in your head. But it's like, well, how do I put this up on screen where everyone's gonna get what I'm putting at? I As got an it. image at this. So the ending for this, it works theatrically as a film. Um, the ending is very concise. It's Oliver Reed is dead. He's hurled out a window he's gone through a windshield he's dead the son has been killed by a chimney and not not a not a sentence that i thought i'd be saying anytime soon but yes yep death by chimney death by uh speaking of death by chimney i wonder if this was the inspiration for the the most disturbing scene in gremlins of Phoebe Cates <laughs> recalling when her father dresses up as Santa Claus and yeah. gets stuck in the chimney. Yeah, that's a real and that I've always had issues with it's that. It's very the movie. out of place in the I re- movie. I remember, I think I saw Gremlins in the theater and I remember laughing. Actually, I was just like, "Who would do that? I, Who would do that?" I remember loving Gremlins, but that scene completely went over my head as a kid. Okay, like I didn't realize how disturbing that was until as an adult, I went back and watched Gremlins. And I'm like. Well, I don't. First of all, I was like, I don't remember this scene. Oh yeah, um, and um, no, I remember it. Yeah, it's just very. It's it's just a. It's it's a it's a it's a curveball. Mm, yeah, <laughs> it throw is. You. It is. But uh, burnt offerings. It, it, it once you've seen it, and once you know some of the background surrounding it, it's it's a trip, man. <laughs> all right, let's wrap it up. I gotta go to the bathroom. Andrew's got to go to the bathroom. But thank you all for joining us. Uh, we will eventually do our Ken Russell double feature. We do have plenty of good stuff coming up on the Cult Film Companion. We thank you all for tuning in. Have yourself a good night. RIP to everyone involved in Burnt Offerings. Thank you for bringing us this uh, this little gem of a, of a movie. Good night. Night. <laughs>